Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. Jim, from the genius and infallible filmmakers over at DC... We got a new, super exciting, incredible, absolutely flawless new movie, The Suicide Squad. What do you think, Jim? Movie? Movie. Yes, Nanawe, it was a movie. <laughs> All right, that about sums up the movie, really. <laughs> the end. <laughs> so I went into this with incredibly low expectations. Along with the rest of the world. Along with the rest of the world. And there's a lot of benefit to approaching something with low expectations. Yeah. And I wonder if that helped me enjoy this movie. Because I always go into any live-action DC movie with incredibly low expectations. As we've discussed on the podcast in the past, I'm not a fan of the Snyderverse. Now the one of us like the most recent Wonder Woman movie. So when anything live action DC comes out, I'm like, eh, do I even want to watch it? If we weren't going to podcast about it, I probably wouldn't have watched it the day it came out, to be honest. Were you looking forward to this movie? Out of morbid curiosity, yes. <laughs> I also had low expectations. I mean, it can't really get much worse than the first one, which this one's not really a sequel, so yeah. You know, that's confusing. I'd imagine the general audience, they'll commit, I guess the general audience won't care that it's not a sequel, but they're not going to know that it's not a sequel. They bring in Captain Boomerang just to show that they've got a relationship as if they were in the first one together. But then there's no reference to the first one. There's no, no anything. And they've said in interviews, like right off the bat, that this wasn't going to be an actual sequel. It's going to be like almost a reinvention of a different timeline with similar characters. I meant to look this up earlier, but I thought Captain Boomerang died in the first Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, I forgot to look that up too. <laughs> but even if it didn't, I mean, I know that in Birds of Prey... Harley also makes a brief reference to him because I think there's like a wanted poster for Boomerang in Birds of Prey. So I guess there's some implication that this may be in the same universe as the Birds of Prey movie, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it had anything to do with or is in the same universe as the first Suicide Squad movie, which I have no problem with because that wasn't very good. So yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> well, they, they kind of hinted towards there have been previous missions with Harley and, and Captain Boomerang in them, just not that one. Right, because like Captain Boomerang's like, how'd you get back in prison, Harley? So there's an implication that yeah. she was in Bell Rev before, maybe have been part of Suicide Squad missions before. Maybe, maybe not. The most important thing, there's no fucking Jared Leto Joker in this movie. Insert cheering sounds. In fact, there's no Joker at all in this movie. 
That all right there, it's already automatically better. As a matter of fact, they actually had a message from the audience in it that said "Die Clown." Yes, on, on the back of Harley's jacket, "Live Free, Die Clown." Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I also think it might be a little bit, at least in the same universe of Birds of Prey, because that was her post-clown phase. Yes, because I think they said the same thing about Birds of Prey, is that it was not the same universe necessarily as Suicide Squad. I don't think anything wants to be in the same universe or galaxy as the first Suicide Squad movie. Right. <laughs> Which kind of leads to how much this movie felt like Guardians of the Galaxy, only you, R-rated. You mean the Suicide of the Galaxy Squad? <laughs> that's that's what I mean. I'm glad you read my words. Because <laughs> obviously James Gunn did not do the first Suicide Squad movie. Right. But he did this movie, and I don't know, maybe I just like him better as a filmmaker. We'll get into some specifics, but overall, I actually found the movie enjoyable. I, yeah. It was entertaining. I mean, I, again, low expectations. One of the things that's intriguing to me about the Suicide Squad, especially with with people like me experiencing a little bit of superhero fatigue is you have the whole idea. It was like, well, there are, there aren't any superheroes. It's all villains slash antiheroes. Mm-hmm. So it has the potential to be more interesting because in a lot of things, superheroes, it's the villains that are more interesting and the heroes are too goody goody yeah. with, with exceptions. So they don't usually have as much of an interesting personality. They don't get very far in terms of, violence and achieving their objectives i think even in the beginning of the movie they don't even bother to dwell much on the concept like right from the very beginning it's just like you know how this works we put a bomb in your brain stem we send you out on a mission you do your job or we blow you up so it's like they don't even bother to dwell on whether or not the audience has seen the first suicide squad movie or is familiar with the concept in any way comic book or otherwise i think the basic premise of the movie doesn't it really need to be explained And they don't even waste any time on it. They just throw you right into it. Right. I would say for me, this overall, this movie, my my initial thoughts were, I don't know. Because I enjoyed myself through it, but it's definitely not a good movie. And there was just something underlying that was just nagging at the back of my head of just something seemed off about it. And I came to realize, I think it's the tone, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I think the saving grace of it was, like you said, the characters. The people that were in it, both the actors and the characters themselves, are what made the movie watchable. I mean, you get you got Harley Quinn being Harley Quinn. I mean, she's not changed that character at all. She doesn't need to change that character at all. And that's one of the few characters I actually really know from the comics. Because like I said, I'm not a DC guy. I've been a Marvel guy. I'm fairly limited on my DC. But Harley Quinn is the one that I really know out of this group. And... To me, she plays the part about as perfect as you possibly can live action. Yeah, Margot Robbie we're talking about. Yeah, fantastic. So yeah, this is her third movie doing it. The first Suicide Squad movie, the Birds of Prey movie, and now this. And she's been fairly consistent. Obviously, Birds of Prey, she got to delve into the character a bit more because it was more centered on her. Mm -hmm. Again... Harley Quinn's the only character in this that I have any real knowledge of, but different versions of her, mostly from animation. The only other character I even have passing knowledge of was King Shark. So that was the other thing that benefits this movie. It's like, I'm not a comic book guy anyway, but there was never going to be a, oh, that's not right kind of moment for me, Mm -hmm. because I know very little about this universe. And I definitely know, other than Harley Quinn, I know practically, and King Shark, I don't think I knew any of the other characters. Well, speaking of King Shark, 
The only thing I have against King Shark in this is that not once does he say, King Shark is a shark. I was disappointed by that as well. But Sylvester Stallone, being the voice of King Shark, and delivering what he delivered, it's forgivable. It's forgivable. He's actually one of my favorite characters, actually. Yeah, mine's Sebastian, but... (laughs) We like the non-people characters. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, that rat had more humanity in it than any other character in this movie. (laughs) It was the nicest character in the movie. Yeah, exactly. Just wanted a friend, just wanted to shake hands, wanted a hug, wanted to snuggle a little bit. Wave, give people pretty leaves. Right, exactly. Very friendly, which actually explains why friends with the rat catcher, too. I think Daniela Melquar. I'm sure you're not pronouncing that correctly. I am. I'm sure, too. (laughs) To me, everybody else in this movie, I don't really feel like many of them were actually really acting. Like, they were playing a part, they were delivering lines... But there wasn't a lot of emotional range or acting involved in this. They're just being themselves and saying a line. There's a lot of good performers in this movie. This movie is almost loaded, with the exception of maybe Margot Robbie. This movie is loaded with actors who are actually, I would call them, performers or good personalities, but not necessarily good actors. So I would agree, most of the other quote-unquote acting was this sort of a casual, let me just say my lines like I usually say my lines in every other thing mm. that I'm in, but my personality is good and my timing is good, so I'm a good performer, and that pretty much covers everyone else in the movie. Except for Margot Robbie. Yeah, except for Margot Yeah, I I'm glad you said that, because I do want to backtrack slightly on that, because she, I mean, she's just on another level in this, as far as character goes. Right. But Ratcatcher 2, I mean, you can tell that's actually a character... And it's a consistent character through the whole thing, complete with mannerisms, the way she runs, the way she holds herself, the the sleepy thing that just kind of keeps going and stays consistent. It's consistently the same way throughout the movie. And I think that goes underrated as far as actors go, because so many actors like Ben Affleck gets all this credit for being a great actor. But in every single movie he's in, every so often he just reverts back to just being Ben Affleck delivering lines and not a character whereas in this one she and margot robbie were characters through the whole thing they themselves never peek out it's always the character whereas everybody else like you said they're just delivering lines they're delivering lines well but they're just delivering lines and again i would say it's not just like they were phoning in for this movie the other actors are pretty much known for being more i call them performers than actors Mm mm-hmm but they're good at it. Like we said, what we've mentioned on the podcast in the past, like people like Harrison Ford, we don't think he's a good actor, but he's a good performer. He can command the screen. He has presence and charisma. And a lot of the people in this movie, like Idris Elba, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Idris Elba. Most people probably know him as Heimdall from the Marvel movies, but I know him from Luther, a BBC police procedural. And it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, he just has... Mm-hmm gravitas and presence so he just has to show up and say lines he's pretty yeah he's like the, he's a large pretty man and also a lot of people know him for fast and furious that too and and this is why he was briefly being con- I, I think this is a good analogy he was briefly being considered to be james bond mm-hmm. and i would compare him to sean connery sean connery who 
not just as James Bond, but in everything Sean Connery did, he was just Sean Connery. How but it dare you? Exactly. But it worked. Like, even like in The Hunt for Red October, when he's playing a Russian submarine commander, but not using a Russian accent. <laughs> <laughs> he's just being Sean Connery. Idris Elba is just Idris Elba, but it's good because he's a very good performer and yeah. he has presence and charisma and he's attractive, so it works. A lot of the other actors fall into that same category too, I would, I would argue. But yeah. and, and a lot of them, it's just, it's either they're cameos or extended cameos almost throughout the movie. The one character that I wish had gone on longer and maybe been in the A squad versus the B squad is actually Mongal. Because I think that character could have done a lot. But then they just offed her right away. It's like, oh, yeah, too bad you can't have a strong female character. Like, literally strong female character. Although Harley does do an almost impossible thing, strength feat in this movie by doing a pull-up in chains and lifting a grown-ass man along with her and then holding him up with her hands at chest level. Yes, it was a very impressive feat. Yeah. Ah. In a scene that is, I don't know if James Gunn has the same foot fetish that Quentin Tarantino does, but, or just in general, I don't know. It just seems like anything Margot Robbie is in, she has to be barefoot and for a significant part of the movie. But yeah. One I, scene. She what? was barefoot in one scene. <laughs> and they showed her totes curling from getting shocked. Yes. So yeah, I would have liked to have seen Mongal. But yeah, I know if you had another strong... I mean, there was a lot of good banter throughout mm -hmm. the movie. So I mean, there's only... You always had the same problem with any ensemble movie. You got to pick and choose what you're going to yeah. do. So there was a lot of back and forth between John Cena and Idris Elba. And a lot of banter there. So I don't know if it would have helped a lot, but I can understand your point. I do like the fact that the quote-unquote, the A squad, it's, it's hard to say which one's A or B, the, the, the suicide squad that we meet first, mm -hmm. I enjoyed because they get murdered because there's a, there's a, like, a lot of like recognized, I wouldn't call them like big name actors, but recognizable actors mm -hmm. playing the people who get slaughtered on the beach. Right. Which I thought was a great way to, again, introduce the concept of the movie of what the Suicide Squad is, but also put in a bunch of people who just get killed right away. Actually, every, I think every single one of them is pretty well known. Yeah. For their, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't call them like, they're not like A-list actors or anything. No, but like just Mike, well known. Yeah, like Michael Rooker and Pete Davidson. I mean, people, uh, Nathan Fillion, people know who they are, or at least maybe they don't know the names, they recognize them. Mm -hmm. And they're there, and then they get killed off. Right. So that was an interesting way to start the whole movie to sort of also giving them a, uh, an excuse to show in case it wasn't quite clear to you, they have a bomb in their head that can be turned on in case they don't do what they're supposed to do. They blow up Mary Poppins. They pop Mary Poppins to show what happens. Michael Rooker yeah. gets his head blown off by the bomb because he tries to run away. Which is kind of funny because he's known as being like the big badass in every movie he's in everything he's in yeah and then in this one they make him a screaming like he starts off as a badass and then he turns into like a screaming little bitch and runs away and then his head blows right he was gonna get killed anyway yeah he ran away because it's like they were screwed right but yeah but it's, it's nice that they slaughtered all of those people up front which is also one of the first things one of the other things we we poked fun of it a couple of times with the, because it was james gunn and the guardians of the galaxy He's known for 
the use of music mm-hmm. in the movies, especially Guardians of the Galaxy. Music is integrated remarkably well into this movie as well, especially in that upfront thing. It's basically the pre-credits role, the pre-opening credits before you even get the first what what is the movie you're watching thing. You get that first team on the beach that dies. And then as the opening credits roll, we got the, these are people who died, died. These are people who died, died. All my friends. And they died. And we go, and you see picture by picture, all of those actors Mm -hmm. and their names get flashed up on the screen. It's like, here's all the people we killed. (laughs) That was definitely an entertaining way to start the movie. Suicide Squad is the only real one that kind of does that, where, like, the first one, they kind of showed, like, photo, who they are, what they do type things, I think, was in the... And then they something similar in this one, except for dead, 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 dead. Yeah, it was a good way of starting, giving us the premise, as well as being entertaining. Right. The one thing that's disappointing to me in this movie, which was also disappointing to me in the first movie, even though they're not sequels, <laughs> is they took what are supposed to be like the worst of the worst, absolutely terrible people, bad guys, and somehow twisted them into good guys by the end. That's one of the mistakes I think the movie made is they try to put a virtuous turn. We can get to that. I want to revisit that when we get to tone because I think that has something to do with it. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where I kind of wish they had just not gone in that direction, but I think they kind of felt like they needed to do something heroic yeah and because the whole villain anti-hero thing is makes for entertaining characters but i think that they wanted to make a try to turn it somewhat positive like they felt like they had to but what can come back to that well that that gets into i mean we could just we could jump into the story now because i think that's a general problem in my eyes with storytelling is everybody seems to be writing stories to rules and one of the rules is you have to have the protagonist, then protagonist has to do good things. And just like that, somebody, you got to have an antagonist that's doing bad things. And the protagonist has to beat the antagonist. And those are general rules that have to be in every story. So even if your protagonists are bad guys, you have to have them doing good things. And I think that's where this fails. Yeah, because they had the whole thing of, again, the premise of the movie is they're doing these missions... Because not just because they have to, but if they don't die, 10 years gets taken off of their prison sentence. Right. So they're being forced to do this and they're willing to try to do it because they could get 10 years off of a sentence in a maximum security prison. Right. So their motivations are not pure. And going to back to your point, people think that there need to be rules. We need characters to follow the rules. So at the end of the movie, not to jump ahead... They have the opportunity to just, well, we're told to walk away. We accomplished the objective. We don't care. We were just doing what we were told. Mm-hmm. And we were told that we've done enough and we can come back now. And then they decide to risk their lives unnecessarily for a virtuous turn. Right. And the movie can't end with them just walking away from it because then we got this giant monster <laughs> destroying everything with no ending. <laughs> Well, that would have been have interesting, done... though. Yeah. Just let the kaiju take everybody right. over. <laughs> <laughs> but it could have just been a simple thing as, okay, instead of trying to make them good guys that had done bad things, make them all bad guys and just have them look at it go and go something like, when are we going to ever have a chance to kill something like that again? Nope. I know how it should have ended. 
Oh, boy. Starro should have taken over the entire planet, and then the entire cast of a Snyderverse should have came out with Starro stars on her head saying, This universe is ours now. And then DC never makes anything ever again. Starro the Conqueror has destroyed the DC Cinematic Universe. Insert applause sounds. I'm not as upset about that as I should be. <laughs> but can we... We'll never get another Batman movie. I could live with that. Live action. As long as we're still getting animated stuff, I'm all right with that. Because <laughs> they beat Starro in the animation. But yeah. we're getting way ahead of ourselves. I'm sorry. You wanted to talk about what? <laughs> so overall, the story, and you had said that you had an issue with just the overall story as far as this kind of how it levels off. Well, how it, you made an excellent point before we started recording about the thing I had said that was the first half of the movie was better than the second half of the movie. And you made an excellent point about what well, you said. What it stayed level throughout the whole movie. Like most movies, they start low or low-ish, and then they ramp up to the end. Whereas this one just stayed level throughout the whole thing. There was no ramp up. And so, I think that's so why... that it felt anticlimactic at the end because it never ramped up. And maybe that's a better way of phrasing. Like what I said, like halfway through the movie, I was like, "Wow, you know what?" Again, this is a low bar, but I was like, "This might be one of the best." live-action DC movies I've seen in recent years. Now, again, that's not saying much because I didn't like the Snyderverse and neither one of us liked the last Wonder Woman movie. But halfway through the movie, it's like, wow, you know, again, like I said, usually the second half of the movie is going to go up. Well, the first half of the movie was pretty well executed for what it was, Mm -hmm. and I was a little bit disappointed with the second half of the movie, but in fairness, I knew I would be because I knew... Project Starfish and Starro. So I knew that there was a stupid <laughs> ending coming. I knew Project Butthole. That's was... it, right there. <laughs> Wrecked him, damn near killed him. <laughs> I knew that was coming at the end of the movie, so I knew I was going to be underwhelmed by the conclusion, but that might be one of the main reasons why I thought that the second half also had to devolve a bit into, there was like a combination of like, the story was well-balanced with both humor in action, very little time was taken out for exposition. The pace was really good. Mm-hmm. And then in the second half of the movie, things slowed down for a bit and started to go off. And then when it ramped up, it got into the silly, over-the-top action sequences, cars colliding and exploding for no reason, buildings falling in weird ways. It just got action movie silliness. Yeah. Combined with Starro at the end, which is why, for me, the ending was kind of meh. But, I mean, again, overall, for the most part, I still found it entertaining throughout. Yeah. But I didn't enjoy the second half as much. Well, that that actually leads me directly into, back into what I've been dancing around this whole time, is tone. So, do you have anything else to say about the story itself? Um, I mean, it's fairly simple. It's, it's fantastical. You gotta suspend all beliefs in physics or realism. You definitely have to suspend all relief. Yeah, one of the things I was saying uh, that I said on Twitter is like, keep your expectations low and don't think about it too much. Right. Because a lot of things, especially the, I mean, it happens in a lot of action movies, but it's like, don't stop and think. There's a lot of things that just don't make sense that happen. Mm -hmm. But to its credit, 
it has a better story or a better attempt at a story than a straight up action movie does. Like, again, I've said before that superhero movies are just action movies with superpowers. There are very few actual superpowers in this movie. Yeah, Polka Dot Man. But other than that... King it, Shark is King, a shark. King Shark is a shark. But for the most part, it's like, I guess you can consider some of the other ones metahumans, but not... Polka Dot Man was the only one with a control collar at Bell Rev. So pretty right. much everyone else in the movie is just... Really good like, at what they do and crazy. Really good at what they do and crazy and violent. So it's kind of less like an amped up action movie. Like at one point while we were watching, I was joking. Hey, look, it's the um, Throwawayables. What's the name of that bad movie? Expendables. The Expendables. <laughs> 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 I think the Throwawayables would actually be a pretty good name for that first Suicide Squad <laughs> that tied on the beach. But, but it, it was basically just an action movie. Other than the one guy with superpowers and the kaiju <laughs> yeah. that shows up at the end. Starro. Other than that, it's almost just like a lot of just gun violence and knives and swords and yeah. slashing. So it's like, it's different than, which is why I was telling you earlier, it's also kind of a break from superhero fatigue for that reason. Right. But to its credit, it does blend in stories nicely. It brings in the whole like... I'm not trying to say that the movie does a lot of this, but like the father-daughter relationship between Ratcatcher 1 and Ratcatcher 2, and then how that forms a little bit of a father-daughter type bond with Idris Elba and Ratcatcher 2, mm -hmm. cast against the background of the really awesome but bad fight that he has with his daughter at the beginning of the movie. Right. So, I mean, they have those types of elements, the little psychological mind fuckery that we'll come back to in a minute about Polka Dot Man basically trying to kill his mom over and over again. <laughs> Some patriotic undertones, which we don't like, but at least the fact that there was some type of a story there. So there actually was, I'm not saying it was great, but there actually was more of a story than your typical action movie. And more yeah. of a story, not a great one, but more of a story than your typical superhero movie. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think that's, that's the saving grace on it. And that's why it's watchable. Right, again, it, it, it does enough of all of these things. Yeah. Combined with some other really good, we'll get to like cinematography and integration of music, it's a really well done movie. It's not a great movie, but I think it's a real well done movie. It did what it was trying to do, and yes. it was successful at that. My issue, I'm going to jump into the tone of it, okay? Because that's where my issues with it were, and like I said, it nagged at me because it just felt like something was off to me the whole time, and I, I guess for me, it just it felt like it wasn't sure what it was trying to... Like, it successfully did what it was trying to do, almost like it just found what it was going to do at the end. So, like, at the beginning of it, like, the very beginning of it, it was actually semi-serious. Like, it almost looked like it was going to be, like, a serious action-adventure movie with some jokes sprinkled in, and then it just eventually got silly. Yeah, the, the ending of the movie was definitely much sillier. There was a lot yeah. of bantery-type humor mm -hmm. at the beginning, it got a little bit sillier uh, later. Right. And is that the tone that you're talking well, about? Le well, let me finish. Let me finish. I'm still, I'm still just starting, dude. <laughs> you look at you carrying a clipboard like you're smart. He's, trying, <laughs> he's pretending he can read. Right? It's I'm just going to make... It's upside down. It's upside but... down. I'm just going to make King Shark jokes to continually distract Mike from making right, his point. right. So I, I, I'm sure that they started that way with the tone just as kind of a misdirect and let it get silly. But one of my issues with it is the silliness and the humor that's in it 
to me is kind of a childish humor that works with adults, but is more of a childish humor. But then they go like super above and beyond to make sure that it stays rated R. Super gory. They throw a couple of boobies in there because of it. The language that's there. But really none of that's actually necessary. To fit the tone of what's actually happening, what's being said, what the humor is there, with the level of violence and the rated R-ness of it, to me is kind of mismatched. And the way I'm looking at it, so... DC is constantly getting bitch slapped for having such a dark and gritty tone in movies where it should be more lighthearted. And then this movie is incredibly lighthearted where this is where you should be gritty and dark. If there's anything from the DC universe outside of Batman that should be gritty and dark, it's the fucking Suicide Squad. You know what I mean? So that that's really where, where my mind went to. And... I, I guess in the the first watch in the back of my head, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. The second watch was when I realized I'm like, something's just not right with the tone. And then the third watch, it, it really clicked for me is it just, they flip-flopped. This could have been very dark and gritty and leaned into the rated R and been a really good, violent action movie. Still had some of the humor and some of the quippy lines and stuff in there but didn't have to be so lighthearted like Guardians of the Galaxies had to to be Disney. I can see that. If they'd have brought that lightheartedness to the Justice League, that would have been a much different movie and been more what people would have wanted and expected out of Justice League. I don't know if I want to go down that rabbit hole. That's a different rabbit hole altogether. But I'm just saying, like (laughs) tone-wise, like they just can't seem to figure out tone. Yeah, Now that you've mentioned it, like the R rating, like one of the things I thought was interesting was for the action movie stuff, especially for superhero-ish stuff, there were a lot of creative kills, Mm -hmm. which again is because there are no heroes in the movie, it's all villains and anti-heroes or mostly villains who turn into anti-heroes. There's a lot of killing, which you don't usually see a great deal of. In superhero movies, or at least you do, it's the superheroes prevent it from going too far. Right. There's a lot of, like, slasher movie-like gratuitous kills throughout this where they go bloodier and more graphic because they have an R rating. And it does seem like every few minutes they're like, hey, we can say fuck. So let's say fuck. Fuck. So yeah, it seemed right. like they were just like going, oh yeah, let's let's get the R rating with that stuff. Like you said, and, and then the occasional brief nudity and stuff like that. And these people say, fuck, fuck. <laughs> fuck, fuck. Oh, my friends, they say fuck. Yeah, see, and that, that whole scene like you're talking about, when they're walking through, they're going through the gorillas and they're just killing people left and right with different stuff. And it's a great scene. Like, it's entertaining. Yes. It's, it's funny. It's creative. All those things. Mm-hmm. But to me, they threw that in there just to show, like, hey, these are bad guys and they like to kill people and it doesn't bother them to kill people. But otherwise, that scene doesn't really do anything. Which is also why it doesn't, it, it's juxtaposed against the why would they give a fuck at the end? And, and the exactly, and the whole the whole rest of the movie, nothing really shows them that they're that they're bad guys, except for King Shark a little bit because he tries to eat his friend, but they weren't friends yet. That's true. So they they have to do something like that to show that they're bad guys, 
just to be able to say that they're bad guys. But otherwise, they're depicted as heroes throughout the whole thing. And that's what I mean. This should have been a dark and gritty, just bad guys living their life, loving their shit because they get to go kill a bunch of people. Yes. They have Peacemaker kind of embody the, he's willing to kill whatever men, women, or children that are necessary to accomplish the objective, and he has no problem with it. Mm-hmm. But they turn it into kind of a, a weird moral argument with what's Idris Elba's character's called? Bloodsport. Bloodsport, who essentially is a paid assassin. So Peacemaker gives him crap for, well, I kill people for patriotism. You kill people for money. But then he acts like he's like more virtuous. Mm-hmm. Like, he, like he has a problem with that and that that's wrong. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, we find out the reason he's in Bell Rev, he shot Superman with a kryptonite bullet. Bloodsport did. Bloodsport did, yes. And presumably, again, paid assassin, doesn't have a great deal of respect for life. The whole scene with his daughter, he's not a good person. Right. Not not, not that any of them. Although Ratcatcher 2 is a little bit out of ambiguous. Out of ambiguous. She robbed the bank with rats as a weapon. Right. So it seemed like she got put in Bell Rev because she could control rats and would be useful to the Suicide Squad, not so much because she was a murderer like pretty much everybody else. And even was. that they leave kind of ambiguous because they don't really... She said she got put in there for armed robbery and that they considered rats in a weapon, but they're kind of ambiguous on whether or not she was actually robbing the bank. Maybe she just went in with the rats and, she didn't and they really arrested sh- her for it. Right. I mean, she did kill people with rats in the movie, but... And didn't, but I mean, the mostly, rats are the ones that killed people. <laughs> Presumably because she instructed them to or ordered them to. But most of her kills were self-defense-ish type stuff. Right. So, yeah, it's uh, the tone. Except for the gorillas. She did kill the guy that was getting into the bag. That's true. Yes. Because um, they fit 50 rats in that bag of stuff <laughs> somehow. <laughs> so, Again, yeah. The, realism out the door. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Realism out the door. So, yeah, you're right. The, the tone of the movie is a bit off i didn't really i've only watched it's consistent but consistently off yeah and and that might be it's saving grace is it doesn't really other than the minor heel turn at the end Mm -hmm. where they do the virtuous turn other than that it stays relatively consistent and that might be why it's okay but yeah it is it is odd we're we're silly and funny but we're also rated r exactly But it, they, they do a good job of balancing the action and humor, which finally is a thing in DC. Yeah, it's one of those things that they really have struggled with. And Marvel is usually credited for being better at integrating the two. Mm-hmm. This was actually, again, especially the, the first half of the movie was almost perfectly executed for its balancing of those moments. The pace kept moving and mm-hmm. oscillated back and forth between humor and action and kept things moving, so it did really, really well. It started to drop off a bit and try to because it had to get more into the story in the second half of the movie. But it definitely was a blend. It wasn't just yeah. a let's just scene after scene of. Uh, I mean, there's lots of cool action sequences and unnecessary explosions and creative kills. But that's not the only thing that's in the movie. Right. Yeah. The only thing that's missing for me in that tone. They set it up perfectly, but they never did it with the butthole jokes at the beginning. Then with the, the thinker's proclivity for, you know, rape and, and sexual deviance. 
And then his death scene with Starro with the tentacles pulling him apart. They should have went full hentai. Just had one tentacle go right up the butthole and then all the way through before he ripped apart. The thinker should have took it in the stinker. And we're done now. <laughs> Am I fired again? <laughs> God damn it. God damn it, Jim. I would try to make an excellent ass joke and you ruined it. <laughs> it was so perfect, too. God damn it. That was good. <laughs> So yeah, it was a uh, it was a weird. The, the, now that you've mentioned it, the tone of it is a bit a bit weird. But again, it's it, it's still it's, uh, it's still somehow worked. Yeah. The other big question that I had, it made some some really good cinematography, but I really want the blueprint layouts floor by floor of Jotunheim <laughs> because it looked like just like one narrow tower, but somehow fit a multi-story Starro kaiju and also a fish tank that ran multiple floors. <laughs> and lots of office space. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a very diverse tower. They packed a lot of stuff in there. Oh yeah. That was almost as full as Thinker's ass. Yes. <laughs> or Thinker Stinker, I should say. <laughs> Thinker Stinker, exactly. Um yeah, that was a bit weird in terms of that layout and then this that's also the part of the movie that's also started to get into this the over-the-top action silliness of mm -hmm. let's have the building blown apart so that it stuff falls down and i guess the people that were in the basement with starro got stuff somehow collapsed onto them but also the top of the building kind of got blown off and then that's gonna slide off and then they're going to run across the floor as the floor is giving way, and then they're going to fall through the floor, not just once, but twice, three times. It's like, it just got, like, really silly. Like, not, yeah. I guess not silly, just over-the-top action sequency. Yeah. And unfortunately, just enough for you to go, yeah, no. Yes. Yeah, that was... But cinematography in general of the movie, the whole movie looked great. Yes, exactly. It was really well done. I mean, there's nice, nice little flourishes like the way that I know it, it's in other movies, but they did it more creatively. I think in this, they spell things out in words using stuff that's in mm -hmm. the scene, like the blood on the beach in the opening sequence after a bunch of them get killed, gets used to rearrange the opening title. Right. And intermediately, like when they're going to go do something, you know, smoke or debris or crumbling buildings are used to spell things mm -hmm. of where they're going. And they did that uh, throughout the entire movie. So that was really well done. And just the simple things like the coloring and the CGI and everything, it's so seamless and smooth and consistent. And enough so, I noticed it. Normally, I don't even look for that kind of stuff. But it just seemed like, Again, going back to tone, it wasn't dark and gritty. It was light. Yeah. It, and the it, whole movie was light. Yeah, I'm about to say, it was, it was, other than the opening beach scene, which was at, set at night, after that, it became a very bright scene. Even the Harley, when she escapes scene, you mm -hmm. know, she's wearing the bright red dress. And then in the middle of her killing spree, it turns literally cartoonish with like mm -hmm. cartoon flowers and birds and stuff. Whether or not that was like, is that what Harley sees inside her brain when she's killing people? 
Or was that a little bit of a wink and a nod to the really colorful scene in Birds of Prey where she shot up the police station with the glitter bombs? Maybe it was a double yeah. nod there, but it was it was weird, but it wasn't like so weird that it took you out of the yeah, it didn't seem out of place. No. Because it's like, oh, that's that's totally Harley. You could see that this being what Harley sees in her head or something. Right. But it, it blended seamlessly. Another thing that blended seamlessly, which could have been really fucking stupid, especially since they went back to it so many times. Polka Dot Man's mom yeah. wasn't fucking stupid. It wasn't. It worked really well. And I think part of that was because of the actress. Yes, the actress that they chose gave you someone who you would think of you would make sense. Like Polka Dot Man wants to murder his mom because his mom worked at Star Labs <laughs> and did experiments on him and his brothers and sisters to try to turn him into a superhero. So he wants to kill her. And every time he sees a bad guy, he sees his mom is what he tells them. Uh-huh. And there were several scenes where you see his mom like dressed as all of the other characters as a picture of her as King Shark when they're in the dance club, he's dancing around all of the girls and all the girls turn into his mom. And even at the end, it's like when Idris Elba goes, do you know what that is? That's your mom. And then it's his, his mom is a giant monster stomping stuff. <laughs> and you would think that that would be stupid, but it works. So the, right. the, I count that as good cinematography, the way that that blended in well and didn't look dumb. So the two things I was laughing at there. The second <laughs> thing I was laughing at was you were very animated there to where good luck editing this because you were all over the place and they can't see it. So it was very pointless. <laughs> the first thing that I was laughing at. Yes, I know. You are walking back and forth. I am walking back and forth. That is a joke if you've seen the movie. Anyways, so the first thing I was laughing at when you said that, you know, his mom, mm-hmm. and my first thought was, she looks like a very murderable mom. She does, yes. And I don't know why that was funny to me. <laughs> or why that was a thought in my head. But again, I, I think 99% of actresses, like anybody could play that part, but 99% of them would not have gone over as well. She just looked perfect for that. And a lot of, I think a lot of, because they picked an, an older, heavy-set woman. And I think a lot of actresses might have been very self-conscious. Of who, the actress who did that owned it. Mm-hmm. And she just it made it look good. It, it actually reminded me very much of the Oompa Loompas in Tim Burton's <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's a good analogy. Or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, so Sorry. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things, like I said, it's definitely one of those things that... And maybe some people will watch the movie... And see that in Starro, which we'll get to it, and say, that's fucking stupid. Yeah. But I thought it worked. I I thought it did, too. Again, that's the cinematography, the way it looks, the way it's consistent. All that is what saves it and makes it watchable at least once, maybe twice. I would agree with that. The other aspect that I would kind of file under cinematography is there's a few times where visual themes are repeated Mm -hmm. And one of them is the bird. So like in the opening scene, when we first see Michael Rooker's character, which Savant, Savant, which is actually a just from a cinematography scene. It's fucking awesome because you're seeing it looks weird. And then the camera turns upside down because you're actually looking at his reflection in a puddle of water. Mm -hmm. And then it flips around and then you see him 
and then you're oriented that he's in a small, like, outdoor yard for yard time at the prison, and you watch him kill a bird with a rubber ball that he's bouncing off the wall. Later in that beat scene, when he gets blown to pieces, the same kind of bird flies down and eats a piece of his corpse. Nice cinematography symmetry Mm -hmm. with the use of of that same kind of bird. And then the birds from the dictator has somewhat similar birds that, that he uses. And then the animated bird, like there's really is a bird theme. Yes. Someone might even come back to that. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I would count that as as things like that, that that little attentions to to detail and little That's why this movie took flight. Yes, it is why this movie took flight. God damn it, I need to stop being around you. (laughs) I, I would say, too, one thing that helped with the light tone of the cinematography is the music perfectly complemented it. There are times when... It's the right song for a scene. Mm-hmm. And then there are times when not just the music, but the lyrics of a song match the scene. Right. And that happens multiple times throughout the movie. So, yeah, the integration of music is very, very well done. Oddly, it's not something I really look for a lot of times. Most of the time for me, the music score just blends in, which is it's kind of supposed to. Right. In a lot of the movie, it blends in, but then all of a sudden, certain songs just kind of pop out in very much James Gunn, Guardians of the Galaxy style, and uh, it worked. It did. So let's talk about the, before we close, let's talk about the thing we thought didn't quite work. So we mentioned that at the end of the movie, there's a, an odd, virtuous turn. Mm-hmm. So we see Starro from Project Starfish, which is a giant starfish from space that launches little bits of itself and sticks onto people's faces and mind controls them. Is that an accurate way to describe Starro? In this movie, yeah. (laughs) So Starro breaks out of Jotunheim and he's taken over the city. But even, actually, there was a virtuous turn before that. So when we get, they they used the thinker, Peter Capaldi's character, to get into Jotunheim. And they find out that, you know, they were sent on this mission to, to destroy Project Starfish, including the records of it. So it, it seems like, like a good mission that they've been sent on to, by any means necessary, accomplish this. And the thinker lets them know, it's like, your real mission is not just to, to stop this, it's to destroy any evidence that the United States has been involved in this research from the very beginning. So you're actually covering up a big secret. Mm-hmm. And that's when we have Colonel Flagg takes the first virtuous turn and says, oh, I have to expose this truth to the world. Now, in fairness, he's not a villain. He's actually the military leader, the good guy, who goes with the bad guys on the mission. To keep them online and make sure they stay in, on the mission. To stay on mission. So it's not completely out of character that he would want to do something, but it's still... Black Ops-type missions where he's doing some dirty shit to get stuff done. So it's still a bit of a heel turn. Yeah. But then that becomes sort of a a showdown between him and Peacemaker and then Bloodsport and Ratcatcher 2 over we got to get that computer drive with the evidence of the bad things so that we can... Which was a bit of a first virtuous turn. Yeah. I mean, I could kind of see it because... Colonel Flagg 
He just says he's like, I'm sick and tired of being their tool. This goes above and beyond. People need to know about it. Maybe. Maybe. Which also makes sense in a little bit, too, that Peacemaker was given a side mission to Mm -hmm. make sure that that evidence got destroyed. Because it fits with him, too, of saying, like, hey, that's going to cause a lot of chaos and not peace. We can't let that happen. We need peace. And then Ratcatcher basically seeing the murder and going, oh, shit, he's a ba- he really is a bad guy. I need to get this away from him. And then Bloodsport's just saying, why are you fucking with my daughter? Yeah. Bloodsport doesn't give a shit about the drive. Initially, he intercedes to save Ratcatcher because when he catches up with the, I mean, Peacemaker kills Flag, Ratcatcher witnesses, Ratcatcher too, gives the drive back. It's like, here, t- destroy the drive. And he's like, well, I have to kill you, too, because I'm thorough. So, yeah, when Bloodsport intercedes, he doesn't know about the drive yet. He appears to kill Peacemaker because he's trying to protect his surrogate right. daughter, Ratcatcher, too. But, and then he just holds onto the drive, maybe initially, like, well, maybe this will come in handy. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, Ratcatcher 2 explains what was going on. And then we'll come back to that in terms of what they do at the end. The more questionable virtuous turn is. The surviving members of a Suicide Squad, Bloodsport, Ratcatcher 2, Harley Quinn, and Polka Dot Man, have basically survived. Did you say King Shark? And King Shark, sorry. King Shark is a shark, and he survives. So they're all, the five of them have completed their mission and are clear to go back. And at that point, Starro is loose and is just destroying the country of Corto Maltese? Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> We're geographists. We're geographists. And they're like, yeah, but we did our mission. You can come home. And they're walking away. And then they're like, nah, fuck it. We got to go back and save those people. And they're like, um, you got bombs in your head. You get blown up. And they all basically say, yep, we're going to go back. And they already said that once the starfish are on their face, they're already dead. Which they even show at the end, too. So I guess it was to save the entire country? World? World? Maybe? From Which you could argue that Waller should have told them kill Starro by any means necessary to stop it. But they turned it into a, no, we got to do this, even though you're threatening to blow our brains out. Right. Why? That's the true, harder to explain, virtuous turn. And I think that goes back to your point earlier. They needed to make them look like good guys. Yep. For no reason. For no real reason. Other than that's the rules of movie making. Other than that's the rules of movie making. So they yeah. go through this heroic thing. Polka Dot Man bites it. But the other four survive and they do defeat Starro. And realistically, in comic book land, what would have happened is they get pulled off and then Waller makes a phone call and here comes the Justice League. And they come in and clean it up. Yeah. Right. But instead... They save the day. It's also sort of a weird, hey, Bloodsport's daughter sees her dad's not a dick moment. Because just like normal teenagers, her and her friends are sitting around watching CNN. She looked like she was probably in like some halfway house, maybe on her way to juvie, depending upon what Waller does to her. But yeah, why they were all just sitting around watching the news. But yeah, but just to see, hey, look, that's my dad. And, like, why would the news actually even run that story of escaped criminal? Whatever. It it was just weird to, hey, look, he's not a dick to his daughter, and he's a hero. Weird. And then the whole thing at the end of, oh, that drive that we can't let the secrets go out. 
we'll basically blackmail Waller so that we can be set free. Right. So that they can maybe be in another movie? Well, at least Harley Quinn will be. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I guess, maybe that was just a, a the, the hard drive thing was just a weird way to give them a way to get out from under Waller. But yeah. the virtuous turn of, of, of risking their lives for no good reason to go back and stop Starro. But again, why do they need to get away from Waller? Why can't it just be they wanted to kill it, they killed it, they go back to prison, successful mission, now they're back in prison for the next one. Right. It's not that hard, and it would be fine. God damn it, Hollywood. Right. <sighs> so now I guess we're supposed to see them as heroes. Oh, now I'm frustrated. You know what? Why don't you give me your, your <laughs> metaphorical rating and your final thoughts? Because I want this shit to be over now. <laughs> My metaphorical rating is Bird? One of my favorite characters in the movie is King Shark. That was not a good King Shark impersonation. But I, I chuckled every time. Even before I knew it was Sylvester Stallone, I chuckled on almost all of King Shark's moments. Mm -hmm. But I mentioned earlier the callback about the bird, the bird that Michael Rooker kills, and then the same kind of bird eats him. And then later, when King Shark, when they're planning the rescue of Harley Quinn, which was funny because she didn't need to be rescued... She rescued her herself. They're all like on the comms talking about like, yeah, we're in position here. We're in position here. And King Shark's just looking at a bird and just goes, bird? <laughs> they're like, damn it, stay off the comms. Damn it, stay off the comms. To me, it was both funny and it made me think of a callback to the bird thing that they've done earlier. So to me, this was kind of like, movie? It was an enjoyable movie. It's definitely over the top action at times. You definitely really shouldn't think too much about it. There are things about it that probably shouldn't work. But again, the benefit of low expectations, I think this makes it an overall enjoyable movie. Mm -hmm. What about you, Mike? What's your metaphorical rating and final thoughts? I'm calling this a successful kamikaze run where they're running this group into the ground. I think they are realizing they can't win with DC the way that it is. And so they're trying desperately to get any kind of minor win they can until the whole thing is over and they're out of, out of ways to go. So overall, this particular movie, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It's worth watching. We'll see how many people actually watch it. I bet you there's enough to make one more. That one's going to be shit, and it'll be the last one, and they'll have to restart again. The last DC or the last Suicide Squad? Last Suicide Squad. Okay. Maybe the last DC. We'll see what's coming up here. <clears throat> I think, but I think this is going to, this, this is showing the end of the DC universes as we see them so far. They're going to have to stop and reassess because nothing they're doing is really working for anything long term. I think now DC probably would be best served with things like this of, don't worry about how or if it should fit into a wider universe, like how this connects to previous movies or future movies. Mm -hmm. Fuck the franchise. You're never going to compete with the MCU on that level. But you can fuck the mouse by making R-rated movies in this genre. I think Thinker already did that. No, he wanted the mouse to fuck him. Oh. So... But my idea is, like, Disney is never going to go 
I mean, well, I mean, you get Deadpool as the one exception in Marvel. But if you want to try to differentiate yourself for Marvel, the R-rated, maybe not for a good reason, but more violent, mm -hmm. more uh, language, maybe the occasional nudity, the type of stuff that won't go in the vast majority of Marvel movies. Yeah, you'll get bad language in Deadpool. But that, and again, fuck, fuck the franchise. Just make standalone movies that maybe get sequels. Right. And then that's just what DC is. And then maybe that doesn't compete with Marvel, but that's not the point. Stop trying to. Just do something, your own thing, and then this could be their thing. Which kind of goes back to what I was saying about, like, the storytelling and the tone of stop trying to fit in a box. Stop trying to take things that have spent decades reaching and going outside the box to create new and stuff that shit into a box. Fuck that. Make a new box. Do what you have to to tell a good story and to utilize these brilliant characters well. Which goes into something we didn't say about the characters earlier that we should have, that they have to struggle to find such D-level characters that they can kill them because they can't use them in other movies. So that's more of a probably like, is that more of a not the they don't want to kill off a character, but they don't want to pay for the rights to the character? I think it's because certain characters are being or will be used in future movies. They can't kill them off in this one or portray them a certain way in this one. So they're limited on what characters they can bring to the table. So that's why we get so many D-level characters in these that nobody knows who the hell they are. Because that's all they can get the rights to. And maybe, that, again, maybe that's a better way to go, too. Because yeah. that takes away the, not all of it, but some of the comic book nerd rage goes away if you're not touching right. the A-list characters. Yeah, don't touch or touch more. <laughs> I don't know. Just do things better. <laughs> DC, Project Butthole. <laughs> Pull the plug. Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Write a review. Reach out to us on Twitter at Fanboy and Hater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater.